Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Adrian Goldberg's talk show and today we're going to interview well a very colourful member of the Manchester music scene for well let's say the last four decades his name is Simon Wollstonecroft Simon was the drummer with the fall from 1986 to 1997 during their very fruitful middle period albums like Curious Orange and Ben Sinister he played on 11 albums in all with Marquis Smith which, as anybody who follows the Falls career trajectory will know, is no mean feat. He's also played live at Wembley Stadium and on top of the pops with his best mate from school, Ian Brown, in Ian Brown's post-Stone Roses career. Simon could have joined the Smiths, but he didn't like the cut of Morris's jib. Oh, yeah, he also hid a heroin habit from his friends and colleagues for nearly 20 years. Many of these stories are collected in his autobiography. You can drum, but you can't hide. There's also a new book about the Smiths out as well, which Simon's contributed to. That's enough preamble. How are you, Simon? I'm fine, thanks, Adrian. Lovely to meet you. Likewise, likewise. Uh, There's so much in this story, Simon, isn't there? But uh, of the many interesting facets of your life and career, how did you hide a heroin habit from your friends and colleagues for two decades? Well, I was smoking the the stuff, and uh, I was a functioning addict, as they say, and I was holding down a job in the early 80s, and the Smiths thing came up, but it was a no from me, and uh, it was a pretty dark time after that. But I'm okay now, and I've had, you know, I've had a very interesting uh, career playing on drums. Well, you have had a, a fantastic career. Let's let's deal with that first, then, shall we? This question of the Smiths, because you were good mates with Johnny Marr and Andy Rourke, That's and you right. used to hang about with them for quite a while before the Smiths. Yeah, uh, a couple of years before that, um, I, I met Johnny Marr in a pub in Sale called The Vine, and uh, I heard he was looking for a drummer, so I said, bring him in, let's have a look at him, and he came in, and, and I was struck how, how much like a rock star he looked, and then I heard him play the guitar itself round at Andy's dad's house, which is just down the road where we used to hang out and uh, smoke a bong, things like that. <laughs> and uh, it was just unbelievable. He played a piece called Classical Jazz. I don't know whether you know it. No, I don't know that. It's an um, acoustic piece written by this Australian guy. I forget his name. But it's very, very complicated, and it, and it just blew me away. And so you were convinced then that Johnny Marr was going to be a star. You could see something in Absolutely. him. Absolutely, yeah. He just had a, a really cocky attitude. Uh, he looked the part. He was a fast talker. Funny guy, very entertaining. And uh, we, we tried to set up a group up called... Well, we did set a group up called Freak Party. But we had a problem finding a singer over a year of rehearsing in this mill in Ancoats. Uh, we tried two or three out. Things went a bit pear-shaped after that. We should point out, shouldn't we, that Freak Party, the band that you were in with Johnny Marr, was nothing like the Smiths. So at that time you were into funk into bands like well, a certain ratio you say that adrian but um barbarism begins at home if you if you know that track by yeah. the smiths very very funky so a lot of the bass parts were like that i think andy's a superb bass player underrated of course i'm still in touch with him so yeah we couldn't find a singer basically and then we got into a bit of trouble with the law which is drugs related go on tell it give well, us a bit of a not actually no. was it not was no. it not it's um Stolen Lowry painting related. <laughs> anyway, come on, tell me that. You can't, well, you can't give me that little tidbit. Well, um, Johnny's name came up in, um, with the police in connection with a stolen Lowry print, actually, 
because uh, Kev the Smoke, who was a, a dealer in Withenshaw, <laughs> he got busted, and anyway, we all got arrested when Freak Party were uh, rehearsing over at the Beehive Mills in Ancoats. This is 1981. When Ancoats wasn't cool and it wasn't Absolutely. the northern quarter. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a no-go area, but they were all deserted and you had to watch out, you know, you get your car nicked easy <laughs> back then. So we got arrested and Johnny went to ground for a few months. It was all getting a bit too hot for him, Absolutely. wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, he actually got prosecuted. It's all on the record. And uh, basically, uh, he rang me out of the blue a few months later and said, Si, um, I found a singer for my, for my new band. <laughs> He's called Stephen Patrick Morrissey, and we're called The Smiths. We want you to be our drummer. So I, I was still, um, had a drug problem, and I didn't fancy, you know, doing it for nothing in a freezing warehouse in Encoats. But I reluctantly went down to, um, to the first recording they ever did, uh, which was, uh, well, we did two, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle and... Um, Suffer Little Children. Suffer Little Children. Yeah. And it was a million miles away from what, what, what really turned me on musically-wise at that time. I'd been through glam, punk, two-tone, jazz funk, British jazz funk. Uh, I always love funk, and uh, I try and get that in whatever project I'm doing. It has to have a bit of funk, otherwise I don't like to do it. And what was your first impression of Morrissey? Well, he just sort of uh, slunk in with his carrier bag, a long tatty coat on, winkle pickers. He didn't look at me directly in the eye. And I just thought, oh, maybe he's a bit shy, but he was a grown man. He is older than me. This, I would have been in 81, 19, I think. Yeah, that's right. I was born in 63. So uh, we did the track and I played along to it. And uh, that was the first uh, ever recording by the Smiths, proper recording. Which people pop. can track down, I think, on YouTube. Yes, it's it still around there. on YouTube. Yeah. But you could have been in that band. Well, um, after I'd read Johnny's book, which came out after my book, You Can Drum What You Can't Hide, <laughs> um, I didn't realise how much they actually wanted me in the band. And he tried to bribe me with ba bags of weed and stuff like that. Johnny did. <laughs> they both wanted me. And... Uh, I just didn't fancy it at all. Said so thanks, Johnny, but no thanks. So, what was your impression of Morrissey then? You say that he was not. He didn't seem kind of confident or assured, which I suppose people who, who saw the Smiths at that time might know. But yeah, did, did you not rate him I, as a singer? I, well, I, I didn't realise, you know, that that character. He developed that character. He's not shy now, is he? <laughs> so maybe I was right all along. <laughs> not to trust. It. I just, but, I just didn't like the music. And it was very morose about the Moors murders. Suffer little children. Suffer little children. Yeah. Awful, awful thing. So um, I, that was it, really. And um, but it did come up actually. <laughs> this particular session on BBC Two Mastermind, um, and the question was, who was the first person to record drums with the Smiths? And this Scottish school teacher got the answer correct, Simon Wollstonecroft. And that's when I decided I'd write my book. How much of a blow to you was it personally when the Smiths, in pretty short order, then went on to become a massive indie band and then a massive top 40, top of the pops band? Well, they were one of the biggest in the country, weren't they? Like the Jam at that time, they were big as well. It was absolutely, I was devastated, to be honest. I was trying to hold down a job at a canteen for the Greater Manchester Council uh, in County Hall there. And it was very, just a very depressing time. 
Um, it took a while to get over that disappointment, but um, it, you know, who knows uh, what, what might have happened if I, if I joined the band, you know. There's a new book out now called I Was There That's about right. the Smiths that you've contributed a chapter to, and you suggest that there was a, a gig that was watched in London by the A&R man, Seymour Stein. Yes. Uh, and you were there, and you noticed that Mike Joyce, the drummer, had made a couple of mistakes, and you were hoping that you might be able to get well, in the band even then. Yeah, I love Mike to death, and I still see him. And it, uh, His daughter went to my daughter's school too, so I know him very well, Mike. But yes, it did come up, and there was a lot of concern amongst the Smiths, um, you know, management about this. It was at the Brixton Fridge, and Seymour Stein was there and all his finery, jetted in on Concord to see the lads, the new signings. <laughs> uh, he looked like, uh, you know, like a, a Greek god or something, you know, dressed in all in white, all sort of lace, very, <laughs> very, very tasteful. <laughs> and uh, anyway, basically, um, Joe Moss put shut to it, so we it, don't it want to the rock man- the boat. The manager of the Smiths, yeah. Yeah, and he was, you know, he was all for it. I mean, he wasn't making a lot of mistakes, but Johnny's very um, particular... And, and very ruthless, you know, about that kind of thing. But given that you had this heroin habit, which I presume had started by then? Oh, yes, you yeah. You were well into started it by in, then. Uh, so, I mean, did you go deeper into that? Did you get properly depressed? Yeah, I did, and I just uh, used to buy it every day, you know, for years. Afterwards, to get over the pain, but then I joined the fall uh, with Marquis Smith in 86, via Terry Hall's Colourfield, had a little stint with him. Johnny had, uh, Johnny's wife, Angie, she'd worked at Vidal Sassoon, I think, and Terry used to get his hair cut when he was up here watching the Reds. I'm looking, I've started a new band, we're called the Colourfield. Do you know any drummers? Johnny put my name forward, I went to the audition, got the gig. That was kind of a bit of a disappointment as well. You'd been a, you'd been a big fan of Two-Tone, though, hadn't you? That was Absolutely. sort of the music you'd grown up with. Yeah, I mean, he was a proper hero of mine, but I didn't get much out of him, I <laughs> And then you had an 11-year career with famously the most difficult man to get on with in rock and roll, Mark E. Smith. So yeah. what, what was so special about you? He liked me, <laughs> and I liked him at the beginning. It was good fun, and uh, I was his wingman when we'd be out in the discos of Europe, you know, when we were playing off. <laughs> and we had a, he, I found him very funny, intelligent. He could be, he, had, he did have a nasty side to him, but uh, we got on fine. And uh, I remember my mum, uh, when I first went round to Mark's house in Presswich, after, when I saw her a couple of days later, she gave me a lift there. <laughs> Said, oh, he's a gentleman. Always oh, he's a real gentleman. <laughs> so, you, you know, people don't know that. You say he was nice to you and he liked you, but you did, it did come to fisticuffs once or twice, didn't it? Yes, it was deserved, though, you know. <laughs> Go on, tell me, give me an example. Well, uh, the first time, um, my mother had passed away recently and I was in Athens in Greece and I was obviously a bit down in the dumps. It had only happened a couple of days before. And uh, it came up to me during the sound check <laughs> and... Uh, Pushed over all the symbols on top of me, which he'd never done before. He used to mess about with all the equipment, but never that. I said, get over it, you uh, people die, get over it. He said that to you just after your mom had died? That's right, a couple of days before. So I, I leapt up and gave him a good hiding. And Steve Anley, the bass player, broke, them, broke us up. Although he, Mark didn't stand a chance, you know, I just flew at him. And Mark said, 
Steve, Steve, that's a sacking offence, isn't it? <laughs> to which Steve quite rightly said, you started it. <laughs> and so I, I carried on. That was one example of how it could get out, out of control very quickly. It only happened twice, me and Mark. Oh, you might as well tell us about the other one. The then. other one, I, I was just uh, chatting a cloakroom girl up in a club in Stuttgart, I think. And he said, leave her alone, leave her alone. He threw a beer bottle at me, so um, full of beer. So I, 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 I had a go at him for that. I can't stand for that. You know, as a grown man. But it was a period of lots of line-up changes, personnel changes. Yeah. 11 years, that's, that's something you must take a fair bit of pride in as well. You I know, do. You, on, on this, you well, know, what a lot of fans would regard as a, possibly the best period of the Fool's career, but certainly yeah. you know, a very good purple patch for the book. Mark liked to call it and he said this himself the glory years because when we got booted off phonogram records in about 1990 he said the glory years are over lads <laughs> you know when we were travelling in, in a bus somewhere <laughs> but um, what was your question <laughs> <laughs> I was just talking about the, the pride you must take in being part of that oh, you know yes. I mean for, for full fans and you know they're obviously yes. a great cult band well Obviously, I got to travel all over the world, uh, which I'd never done. I'd been everywhere apart from, you know, China, and uh, I had a good trip to Brazil there. We were getting a a retainer during all this time from when I first started. In fact, when he asked me to join the band in 86, I was in a support band called The Weeds, and he was kicking Carl Burns out, my predecessor, and said, hey, come on, cop, can I just get in the van with you? Can I have a quick word with you? How do you fancy joining the band? So I said, if you can pay me what I'm earning for the council in the kitchens for six months, I'll do it. And sure enough, he did. It was a great wage. Not in the, it went up, actually. The fall wage, I mean, immediately afterwards. And I earned more then than I do now. We got that week in, week out for ten years. So that kind of helped. Who'd have thought it? Mark E. Smith, socially conscious employer. Oh, not only that, he sent me, a, uh, set me and Steve Hanley a pension up. Uh, with Roth, Rothschild. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Which came in, actually, uh, when I was 55, because I'm 56 now. So I bought a nice car and a suit and a nice pair of shoes, uh, you know, and I think about Mark, you know, how, how good that was. And I do miss him. I'm really glad I went to his funeral, actually, because there was so many people that should have been there Mark had the ability to make enemies, didn't he? Because I think you've spoken about how he was sometimes abusive to John Leckie, the record producer. Yes, he was. That was another side to Mark, which he'd, he'd do from time to time. You might, you might not be able to score any speed, you know, wherever we were in the world, and you could see his, his mood change pretty quickly. So that kind of thing happened a lot. I'm interested as well in this ongoing heroin habit that you had then, so... During your period in the fall, yes. were you still on yes, heroin? Yes, I was. There? Not while I was abroad. Uh, we were all doing uh, speed, all of us, you know, on, on the road, apart from Brick, she didn't, or Marsha, when she was in the band. But, yeah, the rest of us were. And the, the fact that I was in a, a band and doing what I wanted to do took a lot of the pain away. And, and I never got really that heavily into it. As I say, I smoked, I smoked the stuff. Never used, uh, you know, needles. When you say took the pain away, what pain? The pain of the disappointment of missing out on the Smiths and going round the world 
playing and you know such as you only dream about visiting so that was definitely still in your psyche even when you were traveling the world of course finding a fantastic band like the fall and then we'd see the stone roses you know top of the charts on the on mcv which had started by then but it so it it was like a the fall saved me if you like i could have gone right downhill in the depths depths of despair and never, you know, be able to pull myself out. But your habit had started before... Way before that, yeah, yeah 81. When um, you were just knocking around sale and yeah, that part basically. of Manchester. Yeah. There was a lot of it around, Afghani heroin, very, very cheap. And there's so many people selling it. It's unbelievable. But people talk about heroin as something that is really cruelly addictive, gives you a great high when you're first on it. But yes. after that, then, the high disappears, but you've still got to keep... Going yes, for it. Just, just to be yourself, you have to get some more, and so, then the next day, and so the next day. So when you, when you were abroad, though, and you couldn't get it, your normal supply lines had, had disappeared? Dried up. How were you? I was pretty sick sometimes on a transatlantic flight. Um, you know, couldn't sit still, awful. I can see why people go crazy. Presumably, if you <laughs> have to go without it for a certain number of hours, you st- you do automatically start going cold turkey. Yes, you do. That's right. And, and then you just, uh, well, we used to get s- speed, basically. And I'd always smoke, you know, weed or whatever, wherever we went. So uh, that's how I got through it, really. But, yeah, all the time I was in the fall, um, I, I was doing this stuff. It's interesting, though, because, I mean, you would acknowledge now, I'm sure, that to be in a Although nobody knew in the band, but once Mark did say... I remember we were on the back of a tour bus going down to London or somewhere... They said, Simon, are you on heroin? And I just said, what is this? The Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> he just burst out laughing, cackling. But I know for sure he would have known the signs because you've got people who worked at um, the, the mental hospital, as they called it then. I don't know what they call them now. Psychiatric unit Psychiatric or whatever, unit, yeah. 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 Um, he, he knew people that were in there, patients doctors who were prescribing drugs he would have known the signs but you were well able to hide, hide the signs from, from most people anyway yeah. yes I was yeah 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 and was that important to you then that people didn't know was that about yeah your coping mechanism for sure yeah um it's, well it's not a great thing to boast about is it really so obviously I try and keep it down uh, as best I could which I could do on tour as I say there's lots of other things you could take. Yeah, although people might think that being in a rock and roll band's a, a more forgiving environment for that, I don't know. With heroin, it's different. With cocaine, it's all good time, Charlie's. And uh, it's a dirty word, heroin. Cocaine's, I don't think it's, it's looked at as badly as heroin is, in my opinion. I'm just interested in this because, say, for me and for many people listening to this podcast, you know, to be in the fall for 11 years or any indie band of that status would be living the dream. And you were living the dream. At the same same time, though, you were taking this really evil, powerful drug to to numb the pain of not being in this other great band. Well, by that time, (laughs) you know, like I say, I was having a good time in the fall, certainly for the first six, seven years. By the mid-90s, I could see the end coming because that Carl Burns, the other drummer I told you about, found him playing my drum kit when I came back off holiday and then we were recording <laughs> in Wales. That might be, might be a sign. <laughs> well, I just thought, if you can do that, after, you know, I've put you know, all this time in for you. And uh, I just thought, that's not on. And anyway, the standard of the music wasn't as good as those 
Extricate and the ones you mentioned, Ben Sinister, Curious Orange, Friends Experiment, I wasn't never that keen on. But after 95, Middle Class Revolt, I, I didn't like what I was doing. Mm. And it came to a head in 97, as you correctly pointed out. Is that Levitate? Yeah, we were in London doing that to Edwin Collins' vintage analogue studio there in North London. And by this time, Mark had uh, split up with uh, Bricks. Had a couple of... Another wife as well. <laughs> but it was with Julian Nagel who was playing guitar and doing little bits of keyboard in the band. And she came in one day and said, Right, Mark says, drop everything you're doing, we're doing my songs. So <laughs> I just thought, no. And also the money had run out by then. We had a massive VAT bill, which Steve and I and Mark, as partners of the group, were responsible for, which he assured us he was taking care of. But they weren't, and the bailiffs were coming. So I got out quick, just in time as it happens, because Steve Cockford, half the bill. Good timing. Good. Well, you're a drummer. I'd expect nothing else but good timing. <laughs> Go on, have a sit, mate. Go on, have a sit. <laughs> and then we move on to the, I suppose, the, the final part of your public career, anyway, with Ian Brown. Right, you say that, but uh, I was on stage at Butlins the other week with my new band, The San Pedro Collective. Okay. Which is um, led by a guy called Ricky Turner, who was in a band called the Paris Angels from I remember them, I saw the Paris Angels. I'd heard of them, uh, don't get me wrong, but uh, Ricky rang me out of the blue at nearly a year, in fact, a year ago last this Christmas, and said, hey, Si, I heard you're not in a group anymore, um, which I wasn't, because I'd had a six-month break. Do you want to play in this band? I said, is it, got f- is it funky? I said, yeah, it is. It's dirty, funky, sleazy. I like the sound of it. And then I heard him, his voice, he's got a great voice. So we've been working on, um, well, we did our first show, as I say, in Butlin's Minehead at the Shine On Festival. And it was, it was a triumph, really good. A ready-made audience there, never heard us. And we got a good uh, response. In between times, though, your old schoolmate, Ian Brown, then emerges on the scene. Yes. And obviously he then is post-Stone Roses. And okay. you've been to school with both Ian Brown and John Squire, hadn't yes, you? Yes, they were both in my class, aged 11, at Altrincham Grammar School out there in the suburbs. We started our career, the three of us together, in a band, a punk band called The Patrol, and we borrowed the drum kit um, one summer holiday when we from broke school. up. From school. Me Bo- and John. Borrowed it. <laughs> Although I did take one back um, when the book came out, a new drum kit to replace it. And of course, they didn't know anything about that. But nobody used that drum kit anyway. And not only that, it was put to great use. And who knows, you might not have had a Stone Roses. You never got the call to be the Stone Roses drummer, though? No, because by that time I'd met Johnny Ma, you see, and Ian took a year off travelling around Europe uh, in 1982. It was when he got back, he got Rennie in, but I was already doing the Freak Party by that time. So when you played with Ian in his solo career, I mentioned right at the start, you've done Top of the Pops, Mm. you've done Wembley Stadium. Did it belatedly feel like you'd got that proper, mega, well, rock star career that well, you'd craved. Yes, um, although I'd done big festivals on the like with The Fall, and I'd played at Ellen Road supporting U2 with The Fall. Played Glastonbury as well? Glastonbury main pyramid stage with Lou Reed. He was a tricky customer as well. 
Well, he was just, uh, actually, he was probably right, but our T-shirt seller that used to come with us interrupted him. He was having a conversation, and he proper turned on him, you know. Do you mind? Can't you see I'm talking here? <laughs> we thought it was really funny, did JR? He was a very jovial type of fella. But, yes, being back with Ian again, with schoolmate, and, young, you know, young bands, they dream about playing Wembley Stadium. I was with a band called the G.O.D. at this point and uh, I'd driven down the motorway one day, saw Ian's car, texted him, is that you? Yes, it's your birthday, January 19. Uh, how do you fancy playing Wembley? You're sporting the roses. That's, so that's how that happened. So it just shows you really, you know, uh, a lot of things, uh, you know, there is a lot of luck and, uh, you know, it does help to know people. But that, uh, yeah, I was with Ian for... Uh, took two years, played on Golden Greats album, co-wrote the music for Golden Gaze, the track, which is, you know, a great track. People really like that one. Co-wrote the only self-penned full single to make the top 40 That's as well. right, Free Range, yeah. So, um, so I've, yeah, I, you know, I've done other ones as well, not so well known as that. <laughs> but uh, Ian said, actually, when we recorded uh, Golden Gaze, uh, we did it at Sam West in London, which is pretty impressive. You better hope it gets to number one side, that, you know. <laughs> it didn't, but it, I think it got to about number 28 or something. did all right. At what point in this kind of really interesting and varied career, but very up and down as well, at what point did you kick the heroin? Well, um, it was, would have been about the year 1990... About the time I quit the fall, because I'd run out of money. Um, they weren't paying me anymore. I had to drive a, a taxi a private hire cab at night for, for a year or so before I got the gig with Ian. And I may have sort of struggled on a little bit, uh, perhaps got a methadone uh, prescription by that point. But uh, whilst I was with Ian, after that had finished, that was the end of it. What, you know, 1999-2000 was when I was with Ian. And you'd become a dad as well, hadn't you? What year did you yeah. become a dad? 1996. That, was, uh, that, was that part of changing your mindset about it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, cause that's the reason I quit the band. It was I wouldn't put up with his you know, nonsense for no money at all, especially now I'd have my daughter, Emily. And how do you look back now on your heroin use? Thing is, I don't regret anything about my life, really. If I'd said yes to the Smiths, yes, I would have had a big mansion like the rest of them in Cheshire, but... I might, not have got, I might not have gone down that path, but the drugs, it, just, it is part and parcel of it. So, so it's the old, old story, isn't it, you know, with uh, musicians. You can't turn the clock back, can you? You, you say you don't regret the, the drugs, because I guess that's just, that's your life, and there's, there's no, sure. point, no point dwelling on it. And I guess the same for the decision to not take up the offer to join the Smiths. That's it. I've made my bed, and now I was going to have to lie in it. You are now a courier driver by day as well, though. Sometimes when you get up on a cold morning and you get into the van, you've got to go here, there and everywhere, going through the, the choking traffic. Right. You must sometimes think, blooming hell, it'd be nice to have the mansion in Cheshire. Well, yeah, of course, of course. But I'd made my bed, so now I was going to have to lie in it. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure speaking oh, to you, Simon. Thank you so right. much. Thank you very much.